Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, listeners. We have a special announcement for you today. Slate is having a holiday sale. For a limited time, we are offering our annual Slate Plus membership at $25 off for your first year. This is a great deal. Think of it this way. You pay $10 or $15 every month for your music and streaming subscriptions, Spotify, etc. With Slate Plus, for less than $4 a month, you will get members-only content on our show and lots of other Slate podcasts, no ads ever on any of our podcasts, and of course, unlimited reading on the Slate site. And best of all, you will be supporting our show and the journalism that Slate does. Once again, we're giving you $25 off your first year as a member through December 29th. So sign up now at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. Thanks. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest. I love Brucey edition. It's Wednesday. <laughs> oh, my God. That's Dana Stevens. That's all credit and blame goes to her. It's Wednesday, December 22nd, 2021. On today's show, writer-director Aaron Sorkin, he has a new feature out. It's called Being the Ricardos. It's a kind of biopic come history lesson come marital melodrama about the brief but significant collision of the McCarthyite witch hunt with, of all things, the I Love Lucy show. It stars Nicole Kidman as Lucille Ball and Javier Bardem as uh, Desi Arnaz. And then Springsteen Bruce, the boss, he sold his music rights to Sony for 550 million bucks to discuss what this means and maybe doesn't mean. We're joined by a very good friend of the program, Jody Rosen. And finally... Speaking of very good friends of the program, we have book critic extraordinaire Laura Miller on to discuss her year-end 10 favorite books. But uh, first joining me is the deputy managing editor of the LA Times, Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. Uh, Welcome back. It's great to have you, of course. And um, Slate's film critic is Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Stephen. All right. Shall we make a show? Let us do so. Okay, I found it somewhat hard to explain to my kids this sheer ubiquity of Lucy when I was growing up, Um, just as it was hard for my parents to describe to me its significance in the early history of TV. So, taking these in reverse order, in the early 50s, the population of the United States was about 165 million. Uh, i.e. about half of what it is today. Every week, about 60 million Americans tuned in to I Love Lucy. It was TV's pioneering sitcom about a mischievous housewife and her Cuban-American husband, who was a musician and a band leader. By the time I began watching TV in earnest, which I would say is the kind of late 60s, early 70s, up through the mid-70s, the show was syndicated kind of everywhere via local TV stations. Every day, at least one episode of Lucy was on. By the time I was probably 10 years old, I had seen every single I Love Lucy multiple times. And then it's had a third life, a second afterlife uh, on Nick at Night. It became a hit with a whole other 
you know, segment of people. I will say it seems to have petered out. My kids gave me blank stares last night when I said, what are the words I love Lucy mean to you? I mean, it seems to really have not translated yet another iteration into the age of streaming, but there's still time. Anyway, now Aaron Sorkin has returned with a patented OK Boomer history lesson. I say this not at all snidely. I actually like OK Boomer history lessons by and large. This one is a biopic with the marriage at its heart uh, and an incident based in semi-fact. HUAC, the House on American Committee, the basically McCarthyite uh, red hunting, red baiting committee uh, of the House of Representatives got interested in the fact that Lucille Ball had been some kind of communist or maybe fellow traveler uh, 20 years previously in the 1930s. They grilled her a couple of times behind closed doors and and more or less exonerated her. This prompted, however, a salacious and right-wing tabloid press to pick up and run with the story. What followed was a week of scrambling, haggling, back-channeling, marital spatting, uh, and more or less all of it adding up to an attempt to salvage both her reputation and her TV show. This movie, uh, being the Ricardos, it's kind of procedural about how they make made once made a TV show very much on the fly to begin with. It, it, it's also a kind of marital procedural. We'll get into that. It stars Javier Bardem as uh, Desi Arnaz and Nicole Kidman as Lucille Ball. Uh, they head up what I regard as a stellar ensemble cast. But before we listen, maybe Dana, a little setup I think is going to help. Yes. Well, all the setup that this clip needs is that we are on the set of I Love Lucy as it's being filmed. The first voice you hear will be Tony Hales, who plays Jess Oppenheimer, the show's director, who is outlining the concept of the scene, which, as you'll hear, the eagle-eyed Lucy almost immediately objects to. Lucy's putting the finishing touches on a fancy dinner table, good china, silver, etc. Table's set for four, but there's only three chairs. After a moment, the door opens and Ricky enters. Lucy doesn't hear him. Ricky tiptoes in back of her. Ricky puts... Why not? Sir? Why doesn't Lucy hear him? Well, he's about to do that thing where you cover someone's eyes and you say, guess who? I understand it's a setup. I understand why we need Lucy to not hear him. I just don't understand why in an apartment this size, Lucy doesn't hear, or for that matter, see, the front door open when she's standing 12 feet from it. We'll work on that. Thanks. Ricky tiptoes in back of her and reaches around and covers her eyes with his hands. Guess who it is? Bill? Sam? No. Ralph? Ricky reacts to this. No, it's me. Oh, yes, of course. Oh, hang on. Are we supposed to believe that Ricky believes that Lucy really doesn't know it's him? Do this now. That Ricky believes that Lucy is not only unfamiliar with his voice, which, let's not forget, has a Cuban accent, but that he really believes there are at least seven other men who routinely walk into their apartment. She has a pretty good point. All right. Well, Dana, I mean, I typically talk very quickly when I do my introductions, maybe to a fault. I was even quicker this time because there's an extraordinary amount of dramatic compression, condensation in this movie. I couldn't even really do it justice in my already verbose introduction. I mean, it's also about her telling the suits at CBS that she's pregnant, uh, the, the, the infighting that follows after that, institutional infighting and otherwise. There's uh, the uh, communist uh, storyline, which is kind of dominant. Um, but there's also a tabloids reported on, um, on uh, Desi Arnaz's infidelities that runs through the whole thing. These did all happen to some degree, but they happened over a period of years here. It's basically crammed into uh, about a week with a ton of flashing back to the early parts of their relationship. It's not a an unfull movie script. Uh, what'd you make of this? 
I mean, I feel a little bit naive at how much I enjoyed this movie. I I, I really enjoyed it. I'm not going to say loved or considered a brilliant film, but I gave it a very positive review. I only then started to realize, because I try not to read too much about a movie before I write on it, that, you know, it was causing all kinds of controversy and that, you know, it's this very um, kind of conflicted casting process that people objected to. I actually do remember some social media outcry at the time the casting was announced, although most of it, as, as I remember, had more to do with Nicole Kidman not being a comedian than with the fact that Javier Bardem is is Spanish and not Cuban. And I'm sure that we'll talk about all of those things. But I was kind of pleasantly surprised on all fronts. And we've talked about Aaron Sorkin before, both as a writer and a director. And I think in general, I've made this point many times, and it's not a particularly original point. He is much stronger as a writer than a director in general. When I hear directed by Aaron Sorkin, I don't generally perk up thinking that's going to be a really lively movie. But I think this is one of the better things that he's made in a while. Yes, as you say, it's a pretty fictionalized biopic. It takes some real events from Lucy and Desi's life and the history of the 20th century and compacts them all into this one action-packed week, which unfolds in this very formal way, right, where we see Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, as they go from the table read of the episode to the taping of the episode on Friday. It makes for a very satisfying symmetry, even if it is not particularly historically accurate. But I think that a part of it that is historically accurate, as far as I know, and I have read Lucy's, Lucy's autobiography, her posthumously published memoir, and some things about them, I think that it is fairly true to the dynamic of Lucy and Desi's relationship, which was a very tempestuous one. They were known for fighting constantly. Uh, He was an incredible womanizer, but they also loved each other and respected each other as creators a lot, right? And were incredibly powerful on the business end of CBS. And I feel like the movie captures all of that very efficiently, often very funnily, and that the performances are much, much better than I thought. But we can get to all of that. Uh, What about you guys? To me, the thing that made it so fascinating was trying to figure out whether I loved... Nicole Kidman's performance or hated it, the uncanniness. I mean, I, I, like everyone else, thought she was an odd casting choice, but also kind of one of those actresses who can do anything. So it would probably be interesting to see. And what's striking to me here is that, that one of the kind of comedic ideas of the film, which I think works pretty well, is that as they're dissecting the scene work and trying to improve the comedic resonance of various bits, Nicole Kidman as Lucille can kind of picture what the scene will be. And in her head, she imagines the show and we sort of pop into these black and white recreations of sometimes quite famous bits from the show uh, with Nicole Kidman and the other actors acting out all the parts. And in those segments where her hair and makeup are done with the Lucille we know and you know she's got the the wide elastic mouth and the eyes and the physicality I I think she does a pretty good impersonation when we get backstage Lucy it's harder to tell whether she's doing a good job because I don't feel although I was among the generation that watched I love Lucy on Nick at Night and I've watched probably as much of it as you have Steve. And similarly, my kids have never heard of it and didn't know what it was when I was talking about it this weekend. But I don't have any sense of what Lucille Ball was like offstage. And so she's quite different in this film, which seems likely. Obviously, Lucille, the Lucy of I Love Lucy was a pretty exaggerated comedic heroine. Um, But I didn't feel like I quite trusted this version of who 
Lucille Ball was behind screen, not so much because of Nicole Kidman's performance, but because she just seemed so Aaron Sorkin-y. Mm. Like, it just felt like Josh Lyman was, like, pacing around, you know, in <laughs> Nicole Kidman's body <laughs> pretending to be Lucille Ball. Yeah. Um, whereas the, uh, Javier Bardem's Desi Arnaz, who... I found slightly more, he also had a difference between his on-screen and off-screen self, um, but I found his affect, there was sort of less of a split between his on-screen and off-screenness in a way that made the whole thing a little more plausible to me. I'm curious what you guys made of these yeah. performances. I mean, I had I had a funny reaction to this movie. It surprised me enormously. It's yes, Sork, Sorkin walk and talk. Yes, Sorkin fake history lesson. Sorkin smarm. Okay, boomer moral signposting all the above. For all that, for all that, I kind of, I loved it. I kind of loved it. Like I, I you know, I, or just shy of loving it. Um, I found it a very solid movie. Crisp, tart, very smart, fast, not too glib, or at least too, too glib. Uh, uh, um, I think it's a, a movie about people who give and get really hard behind the scenes and in this marriage. These two people do it in this marriage and and they know to expect it. And so everyone is shrewd, hard-bitten, tough, and, uh, and ready for the barb and for the undermining or undercutting. Uh, it's, to my mind, a professional and a marital procedural. So I like the how do you make a TV show in 1950 as well as how do you fight those backstage battles and then this is what I really genuinely admired about the movie. How do you make a marriage between two tough, intelligent fighters work, kind of underdog fighters, two alphas, the story of two alphas? How often do you really see that in movies, right? Um, I love when it goes back to the moment very early in their relationship where some of the power equal equilibrium is being established between them, and it becomes clear to each of them, you see it dawning on them that they're each other's intellectual uh, equals. Uh, he says to her, you are kinetically gifted. I think a beautiful line. Yeah, it's sort of, I can see Aaron Sorkin pushing back his chair, staring at his Olivetti and patting himself on the back. I don't care. I think it's a wonderful line. And I think it's the moment where he says to her, I see, I see what you're built of. I see the stuff you're built of as a human being and how that can translate onto stage and film. Um, Okay, so we're going to get to Bardem, Dana, next. And the and the he's Spanish, not Cuban. He's doing an accent. Uh, many people are offended by the casting. But before we get there, I want to say I think he's wonderful in this movie. Um, not only is it depicting a, a, a Cuban-American confronting racism in the TV business, but um, as he says at one point, the Bolsheviks burned down my house, right? You know, um, he... I, now, some of that is fictionalized and exaggerated in sort of TV movie ways, but so be it. Um, he sees himself as someone who lived the wrong end of the communist gun. Um, and um, I thought that that was brought in, in in a powerful way. This movie has some terrible lines. Don't gaslight me, Julia. I think you're right. Just, just a lazy anachronism. Um, there's way too much drama condensed into the whole movie, but the last 10 minutes is so just crazy. It's so woozy and, and and melodramatic, and it just teeters on the edge of the Sorkin abyss. But I thought it was good Sorkin, not bad Sorkin, uh, overwhelmingly. I love the two leads. But Dana, of course, there's a controversy, as there, as there should be, about the casting of Bardem. Where do you come out on that? 
Yeah, I mean, here's a place where I feel like it's really not for me to say as a, an oblivious white viewer who just enjoyed the movie. I had a hard time connecting into the offense about this because I feel like the character is, is as you say, well played by Bardem. I can't speak to whether his accent is accurate or not, but I have a hard time placing myself in that debate in, in any kind of meaningful way. Well, I mean, I think it's really, I think the thing that's challenging is the cries that come out when the representation of a famous historical figure is not exact or close to the exact background of the person being represented all have a good effect, right? Which is to kind of push on the executives and the people who say, oh, we couldn't find somebody. Oh, there's nobody out there. Oh, you know, it, it is true that it's been historically too easy for executives to just not look that hard or that far. You know, the challenging part is that if if we do get to a place where everyone who plays a role has to have the exact particulars of the person who they're portraying, that begins to feel limiting too. Um, so I, I don't know. I, th- I feel like this conversation is caught in that vortex. Yeah, it's a tough one. Let me end uncontroversially. Tony Hale. I mean, I only have just in the last like six months or so been turned on to Arrested Development by my kids. But Tony Hale, you know, plays the completely stunted, you know, son. Uh, and in and that is just the, he's meant to be the most in extremis, hapless human being who ever lived there. I like that here he's part of this t- tough, hard, you know, hard bitten, you know, palace intriguing, you know, showbiz uh, procedural. He's great. I think he's terrific in this. It was so great to see him play a completely different human being and do it beautifully. Okay, it's uh, Being the Ricardos. It's probably, I think at this point, streaming on Amazon Prime uh, and in theaters. Check it out. Tell us what you thought. All right, moving on. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, before we go any further, we typically discuss business now. Uh, Dana, what do we have? Steve, our only piece of business this week is to tell you about our Slate Plus segment, which actually changed in the course of recording this show. We had the plan to do a listener question, a really good one that I hope we'll do in the future for a Slate Plus segment. But when we were talking to Jody Rosen, longtime friend of the program, about music rights in the context of Bruce Springsteen's new deal to sell his music rights uh, in perpetuity, during that discussion, an old favorite, an old bugbear of the GabFest came up, somebody that we talk about every time that Jody Rosen comes on the show. He and Steven seem to get into it about Taylor Swift. And because she also has a music rights story in these last few years, we got into a whole sidebar about Taylor Swift that also turned into a sort of aesthetic debate between Julia and Steve about the history of his resistance to Taylor, why she has become this recurring topic on the show that we can never seem to get past. So if you are a longtime fan who would like some excess Taylor Swift content turned into a Slate Plus segment, that's what we have for you this week. I feel like this is the ultimate um, like dog whistle pitch for Plus, and it will send half of our listeners like scampering for the subscribe button and the other half throwing their headphones out the window. But uh, <laughs> we'll return to like regularly scheduled non-Taylor programming next week. So if you're a Slate Plus member, that little treat or a little bit of punishment, whichever you experience it as, will be waiting for you at the end of the show. 
And as always, if you are not a member of Slate Plus, you can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Signing up for Slate Plus only costs a dollar for your first month. And for that dollar, you will get ad-free podcasts. Never have to listen to me read an ad again. Bonus content like the Slate Plus segment that I just described. And also members-only programming on many other Slate shows, including Slow Burn and The Political Gab Fest. Members will also get, of course, unlimited access to all of the great writing on Slate. So you will never hit a paywall if you belong to Slate Plus. Above all, when you're a member, you're supporting our work and the work of our brilliant colleagues. These memberships are really important for Slate, so please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, Steve, what's next? All right, well, we're joined by um, Jody. I can't even come up with an acronym for it. You're such a good friend of the program. (laughs) There's no way to reduce it or compact it down, but Jody Rosen, who uh, is a contributing writer at the Times Magazine and a dear friend personally and professionally. Jody, welcome back. Thank you, Steve. So good to be here. Your book is Two Wheels Good, The History and Mystery of the Bicycle. Can you tell us a little bit about Two Wheels Good, the title? What does that mean? It's a cheeky, you know, paraphrase of Orwell um, from Animal Farm. Uh, Two legs bad, four legs good, something like that. Isn't that right? Um, but it's it's a it's a phrase that um, that cycling activists have taken up, the idea being that the bicycles two wheels are good and the and the automobiles four wheels are bad, um, and that's one of the many ideas I'm interrogating, Steve, mm. in my revisionist what have you history meditation whatever you want to call it on the bicycle. All right. Well, news has broken this past week that Bruce Springsteen has sold his music rights to Sony Entertainment. The payout has been reported at about $550 million. It would make it the largest such transaction to date. By way of comparison, Bob Dylan did it fairly recently and got about $300 million. Here to discuss what this means and doesn't mean is Jody. Jody Rosen, uh, tell us, um, it seems like, superficially at least, a perfectly acceptable late capitalist win-win here, right? An artist who's entertained us all for decades gets an upfront and mammoth sum of money to enjoy while they're still with us. You know, these guys aren't getting younger. Um, And the buyer uh, gets a future revenue stream off presumably into infinity or uh, up until such time as they resell it for a profit, right? Downloads, streams, licensing deals to ads and movies. Uh, How do you read this? I mean, yeah, that's the kind of the the nub of the question, right? Which is like, this, what does this mean for the buyer? What does this mean for the seller? What does it mean for, you know, art and commerce writ large? But I mean, like, one thing that's worth noting is just like, after a long period in which it seemed dubious that the record industry would even survive into the internet era, now people have the idea in their heads that music is not just profitable, but a really good investment for the long term. So this is why Universal Music Group, um, I mean, this is why the three major music labels, UMG, Sony Music Entertainment, and, and Warner Music Group are making shitloads of money. It's why UMG had a huge IPO in September, and why Warner has this big valuation. Um, and it's why these, like, lots of financiers are dumping a lot of money into music assets these days. And in fact, kind of the really bullish people in the music industry uh, are saying not only is music a stable investment, it's a more stable investment than, you know, even oil or gold or something like that, because music is less subject to market fluctuations and other forces. And in fact, what we saw during the pandemic, during this, you know, kind of global cataclysm was 
yeah, I mean, you know, people are making lots of money on music. Everybody still wants to, to listen to music. So, so that's kind of the background and, and what you, there, there's, there's actually kind of a, like a single figure that we can trace the rise of this, um, bull market back to, who's a guy with the unlikely name of Merck, Mercuriatus, um, who in, in 2018, he's a former record executive who founded a company called Hypnosis in 2018, I think. That's, that's hip as in H-I-P, hip man, and, and gnosis as in gnosis, <laughs> G-N-O-S-I-S. Wonderful. Uh, but in any case, the, na- the name be, may be ridiculous, but, it, but it's, it's, cure, it's clear that this guy, Mercuriatus, is, is kind of a visionary because he had the idea to begin aggressively acquiring these musician, musicians' catalogs, and he convinced a lot of these private equity people to back his vision and invest huge sums in this um, with the idea that, yeah, they, these things could be exploited into, you know, forever into the future and in all the ways that you can exploit music assets these days, especially if you're, you're ruthless and maybe even a little tasteless about it. So not just, um, you know, whatever in TV and radio advertisements, but jukebox musicals, you know, video games, whatever. My main response to this trend is that it's just kind of hilarious that something that's supposed to be as renegade and untamable and wild as the art and passion of the rock musician has become <laughs> like a stable investment asset. Yeah. But the thing that oh, I yeah. find most interesting about it is that music was inappropriately valued, right? It was valued the way you would value a book, like once you buy it, that's the value. And if you listen to that CD, you know, before it was digital, you paid whatever, $7.99, $17.99 for an object, which allowed you to hear multiple times the music of whomever. And if you ended up using that object every day for 50 years, the the, the company is associated and the artist associated still only got their $7.99 or $17.99. Um, and music is not like a book and it's not like a film and it is it's it's i don't know more like buying a furnishing or something right it's like something that you use in your life in an ongoing way it's not a finite experience that you consume once for the most part so you know the 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 deal with pre-streaming music purchasing was that it was a bit of a gamble right you had this inert box you didn't know what what it was going to sound like you had to pay the 7.99 or the 17.99 before you knew whether you would listen to it every day for the rest of your life but if you found something that really resonated that was a great deal for you the consumer and um you know without it becoming a substantially worse deal for the purchaser, you know, the person who subscribes to the streaming streaming service, um, a lot more value goes to the people whose things are listened to gajillions of times. Of course, the people who get screwed in this equation are the people who are newer, who don't have a catalog of, you know, 600 plus songs that have been honored with the Nobel Prize for Literature. You know, the the non-Bob Dylans, the non-Bruce Springsteens don't do as well in the streaming era. But I don't know. It's just it's it's like monetizing the long tail in in a totally different way, and it also just takes the shine off the new 
and reminds you that like what people consume is not always the new stuff, even though the culture press is often very focused on the new stuff. And both of those, everything about it is perverse and thus sort of charming. As to like the inappropriately valued, I mean, I don't know, like, I mean, music maybe was, I think maybe it was more like the artists were inappropriately compensated, mm. <laughs> you know, like I, you know, the record companies have always been making hands and money hand over fist all along. Um, and um, these catalogs have been exploited by the owners um, for generations. It's not like we're, we're going to be seeing, you know, um, television ads with, you know, famous pop songs in them for the first time now that these sales are taking place. On the contrary, I think what we may see is, as again, like, you know, it, this stepped up to an even higher level, you know, like lots of these. So for instance, James Brown's catalog was acquired by uh, a, a hypnosis-like company called Primary Wave Music, who kind of build themselves as the um, discerning alternative to hypnosis, like the snootier version. Like we only acquire like the great catalogs. So they got Jim James Brown's recordings, his catalog of songs, his publishing, and his image rights. So, like, in other words, there may be, like, James Brown hologram mm -hmm. tours, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of that kind of stuff. We'll see a lot of that stuff. You know, like, okay, like, take this case of Springsteen. You know, in the past, we, like, he, we haven't seen his songs in commercials. Okay, now we might not just see, like, we might not just see, like, a Cadillac ranch. Like, we'll be in a Cadillac commercial, mm -hmm. right? Or in, like, a ranch dressing commercial. Like, this may go, like, n through the roof in terms of, like, the kind, like, the degree of exploitation we see. But in terms of, like, the value, like, I think it's, gr it, in some sense, it's great that these artists are getting properly compensated. Not that Springsteen and Dylan in particular were not properly compensated. They've made a lot of bread over the years. But just on principle, um, yeah, it, it's, 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 this may, I mean, not to ramble on, but one other thing this may represent historically is a kind of shift in the balance of power from record companies to the publishing side. Because, like, take the case of Dylan. He didn't... Uh, Springsteen's $550 million deal included both his master recordings and his song publishing. The, the, the rumored $300 million deal for Bob Dylan's catalog, that was just his songwriting catalog, right? So that's just the intellectual property, the songs themselves. Um, and... That's so. So what we're seeing here is like you know, like the song itself. The that is maybe an asset where that artists are going to get properly compensated for in a way that they maybe hadn't in the past, and that and that may ultimately be good um, for young um, artists as well. Jody, I had a question about the two different kinds of deals that we're reading about here, the Springsteen kind and the Dylan kind. It seems like Springsteen made the bigger deal, right, where he sold both his recording rights and his songwriting rights, whereas the deal that Bob Dylan made last year was only selling his songwriting. I'm, I guess I'm wondering on the selling out continuum you were discussing where those two kinds of deals fall. Why would you make one decision and not the other? Basically, like what can happen to Springsteen's of now that can't happen to Bob Dylan's? I mean, I guess the, the, the difference is that Springsteen's recordings themselves can be used in whatever he, way he wants. So, so in, in the case of Dylan, let's, let's go back to like the, um, uh, like a salad dressing commercial, right? So you could theoretically hear Th Thunder Road on a salad dressing commercial and you'd hear Springsteen singing Thunder Road. You know, if a salad dressing company wanted to 
use the times they are changing, you wouldn't hear Dylan's recording. You might hear Joe Schmo singing the times they are changing. The Schmo version is um, great, by the so, way. Don't, don't <laughs> undersell it. <laughs> but is Dylan is the idea that Dylan or another artist who chooses the songwriting rights only to be sold? Are they trying to wall off and preserve their recordings? Do you think because of you know so they want to fall somewhere on on the purity spectrum, or is it simply that you know this is it's it's a better deal to be made in that individual yeah. situation? That's a good question. I mean, I I don't I, I the answer is I don't know. I I can I can you know we I can envision various reasons why Dylan might want to do that. Maybe he thinks he could get. A better, uh, you know, uh, more money in a separate deal. I don't know. Maybe he's like raising the value by, you know, <laughs> holding out. Um, and maybe I, I, I hesitate to say that Dylan has some purity reasons for not doing that. It just doesn't seem I mean, like I, Dylan to me. I, yeah, I mean, I, Jody, I don't disagree with, disagree with you. And having gone back down the Beatles rabbit hole recently, and before that, the Johnny Cash and Sun Records rabbit hole. These guys liked making money. They're perfectly ordinary citizens of a late capitalist pseudo-democracy. They want to make money. They want freedom. They want um, glory. They want all kinds of things. And purity is not probably the right word to describe any of them, with maybe a couple of exceptions. I mean, these are extremely driven, ambitious, uh, self-centered by necessity people. Um, We don't have to have any illusions about any of them, even John Lennon or whomever, or Bob Dylan especially, as you say. Nonetheless, like, does it have to be called purity that, for example, Bob Dylan might not want to hear? Like, is it purity to think that some of these people made what they regarded at the time as works of art only in the sense, or, or not even art, like that you don't even have to inflate them and make them, you know, you know, pretentious artists, but they just took pride in the thing that they made and they don't believe it belongs in kitsch contexts. I don't think that that makes them products of some, you know, revolting passe, you know, pre-hip hop era elitism. I can understand why someone might like to be worth $500 million and also doesn't want their work leveled down, you know, uh, by TV commercials. That Aside, I want to bring up one other thing very quickly, which is, yes, it is true, Wall Street can take any asset that produces a revenue stream, project out hypothetically that revenue stream into the future, do a little presto, you know, digitation with it and come up with a net present value for any asset. Lo and behold, you come up with roughly 500, you know, half a billion dollars for Springsteen's future revenue streams. That has a maybe not so hidden assumption built into it, which is that tastes are going to reproduce themselves generationally. And what I'm imagining, though I may be wrong, are a lot of boomer financiers whose emotional investment in this movie makes them seem like permanent as Rushmore, Taj Mahal. These are just the icons of the human mind and spirit that just can't erode in value over time. Wouldn't you share a little bit of a malicious chuckle with me if in our lifetimes we saw that that was false and these had been the artist made out like a bandit and and some large octopus of a multinational corporation kind of got a little screwed here? I mean, my kids, my kids aren't downloading Springsteen, you know. Uh, they're not downloading uh, Dylan, you know. Uh, they scarcely knew what I Love Lucy was. I mean, you know, isn't there just a like? Isn't this just a little bubblicious, another speculative, you know, moment of ridiculous speculative excess to some degree? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I think I agree with everything you just said. Parts one and two, by the way. Like I personally, like I don't. There, there are. Yeah, I think I think it's 
a little grotesque to see some many of these songs in commercials. I think it's grotesque. I think jukebox musicals for the most part are grotesque. Yeah. I guess for the second one, yeah, I would I would like maybe I'm chuckling darkly in part. On the other hand, I don't know. I mean, like, let's take a look at, you know, some of these things may be shockingly, prove shockingly durable. Mm -hmm. And that is not to, that is not to say that like, you know, your kids or my kids care about Bob Dylan or Springsteen, you know, but, uh, you know, like if you look at the number, the streaming numbers, right? Like, a a, dispro- a a huge a vastly disproportionate percentage of what is streamed online does fall into the category of older yep. music you know and i don't think that's just because it's just boomers i think there's like some of this some of these these this classic rock soul even early hip hop at this point and has you know enters like i believe in the idea of a canon of like psalm standards of like you know a kind of a great american songbook if if you will which is a living breathing thing that Agreed. grows and changes and like if you look at a phenomenon like karaoke or american idol like there there are there are songs that endure and will endure presumably as assets like just one other thing i mention is like okay so we're in the middle of the christmas season like we need Chris Melanthi here, but I think the number one song in the country right now, again, this year, is Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas <laughs> is You. You know, I think the number two song in the Christmas is like Jingle Bell Rock. Okay, so that, so like now Christmas, you can put an asterisk next to Christmas, but sure. there there are, you know, like Bing yes. Crosby gets played a lot yeah, this time of year. getting rich. Okay, yeah. so... I gotta say, so, the latest hit parade by yeah. Chris Melanthi is all about this, and it's like... I love that show generally, but it's a really, really good episode for listeners because oh, it's awesome. it's entirely about. There's a great bit on Brenda Lee and sort of these these historical music titans who now are are dominated by their their long tail Christmas hits, you know, which themselves are getting more play because instead of just putting on the one Christmas album that you own every time you trim the tree, you can just like pop up one of Spotify's like ready-made Christmas mixeroonies and all of those songs are on it. Um, anyway, it's, it's a great episode. Uh, let me just say, Jody, it's always a pleasure to have you on this uh, show, regardless of where we, how we careen off, uh, from our intended purpose, but, uh, love you, man. And uh, have a great holiday. Okay. Okay. You too. Bye guys. Thanks Jody. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, well, we're joined by Laura Miller, of course, the book uh, critic extraordinaire for Slate and general cultural critic extraordinaire and friend of this program. Laura, uh, welcome back. It's great to be here. Uh, Here's one of those sort of uh, pregnantly suggestive misreadings. The last sentence of your intro paragraph to your 10 books list, a year-end books list was, here are the 10 I most enjoyed this year. And I kind of, my eye pushed together the I, and so I read it as here are the 101 most books I most enjoyed this year. But it, 
And which was all too believable, Laura. Like, I guess I regard you as some kind of a, you know, machine, a reviewing machine. But um, I think maybe it was my Dodie Smith obsession. I just see 101 wherever I look. But it does raise the question, how many books do you read in a year? Do you have a a guesstimate? Oh, I'm sure it's not 101, but it's definitely more than one a week. So it's somewhere between 50 and 100. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what I would have guessed. Okay, so uh, you've... uh, been forced to choose 10. Why don't you walk us a little bit through the list, uh, going kind of highlight by highlight and and also surprises. There's some surprised me, I have to say. Um, well, there's at least a couple of books here that are by authors that people sort of sleep on because they seem overly familiar or maybe their work is not totally in fashion. Um, the latter being Jonathan Franzen, who has started this new trilogy, which is... Um, called The Key to All Mythologies. I can't remember the exact wording, but it's the same name as um, as the massive work that um, Mr. Kasabin was working on in middle of March and was never going to finish. Uh, so a joking name, but the first volume of that is called Crossroads, and it's about this very middle American family going through um, all of the uh, convulsions of of the 1970s. And I just love that. I thought all of the characters were so richly drawn. And there was enough of a sense of history without it being a novel that was just sort of pretending to be about people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought he was really in top form with that. And then the other one who I think people sleep on is Louise Erdrich, even though she wins a lot of prizes, she gets on a lot of lists. Um, she has this this her novel this year the sentence is this sort of lovely uh, almost like fl- weirdly floating novel when you think that it deals with like um uh oh you know native american issues such as uh unfair policing um the george floyd um murder in minneapolis where this this novel is set um the very fraught Native history in that area, but it's set in a bookstore. Its narrator is an Ojibwa woman named Tuki, who is incredibly funny in this particular kind of super deadpan sense of humor that I associate with Native American authors and that I just completely love. She She's an ex-con because she uh, stole a dead body that she didn't know had drugs hidden in it. She did it for love. And um, now she's working in this bookstore, and she's basically married to the man who arrested her, <laughs> which is a really tricky situation. And she's being haunted by the bookstore's most annoying customer. And she also thinks that she's found a cursed book with a sentence in it that will kill anyone who reads it. And so there's a lot going on in it. And it's just so fun and so rich. And it's so not heavy. Is I, I feel like Sometimes people look at a novel and they think, oh, God, I'm just going to feel the weight of all human suffering on me. And this just had, it, it reminded me a little bit of um, James McBride's Deacon King Kong, and that it's like a portrait of a community and, and all of the friction and the and the love in it. And it's just very human and, and delightful. So that th- those are two that maybe surprised you. 
An observation I wanted to make about Louise Erdrich, not knowing this new book and only having read a couple of her novels in the past, is that she's funny. And I don't think that she gets yes. enough credit for that because yes. she writes about you know Native Americans, because she often sets her, her novels in settings where there's people going through a lot of hardship. I think she gets tagged with some kind of the idea that there are these downer social novels that are just all about social critique or something. But in fact, she has a great sense of humor. And it sounds like in this this new novel, it's really um, hard at work, like st- stealing a, a, a dead body with drugs planted on it and then marrying. <laughs> the guy who arrested you. That's just a great comic setup. (laughs) One thing I love about year-end best books lists, even more than in other mediums, is they just have to throw apples and oranges together. And the notion Uh of trying to figure out like what novel and what piece of nonfiction um, all belong in the same jumble, you know, both seems like it must be a difficult task and also not one because it's just what moved you and what seemed extraordinary. But how, how do you think about the nonfiction picks versus the fiction picks. And, and I guess I should tip here that the one book I've read is um, Empire of Pain, the Patrick Radden Keefe book, which I did think was just an extraordinary work of nonfiction. But h- how do you approach that jumble? Do you try to have half and half? Do, do you just let the year's um, riches dictate what the mix is? Well, for many years, I that was just the format. It was five fiction and five nonfiction. Um, when I worked for a uh, another publication. And then when I came to Slate, I um, I did the same thing, although my editor, Dan Coyce, would say, you know, you don't have to do that if you don't want to. Um, and this year, I kind of took him up on it, because this year, because I read a lot for work, I mostly read fiction, because that's mostly what I write about for Slate and other publications. And, um, and so I, and while I did read some nonfiction. None of it wowed me as much as some of the novels that wound up on this list. Um, There's a few things that I sort of read on the side, like Tia Miles's All That She Carried, which is a really fantastic, unusual work of history that's all about a um, cotton sack that uh, an enslaved woman gave to her daughter when her daughter was sold away in the mid-19th century. And all the whole history of slavery and and the years afterwards embodied in that sack, which is now in a museum. And um, obviously Empire of Pain, which is uh, just a corker in every sense of the word. It's both incredibly deeply reported and, you know, beautifully told. I really loved Michelle Zahner's Crying in H Mart, which kind of came out of left field. A lot of people were talking about how much they liked it. And I said, oh, what the hell? I'll check that out. I don't have a lot of nonfiction on this list. And it's a memoir by a woman with a Korean mother and an American father, and her mother died of cancer. And this is a her sort of memoir of the role of food in their relationship. And that it is also, I know that also sounds really, really heavy, but it's very funny. And partly because their relationship was very funny, that her mother was not super expressive of affection, but she would always, you know, be putting food in front of her. And um, Crying in H Mart is an essay that she wrote for the New Yorker about how she couldn't go into this Asian food store without crying, or at least some of the time she would start crying, because that was the only th- the only contact point that she had left with the culture that her mother represented, and the aspect of her identity her mother represented. Um, so, you know, there, there, 
it's tricky. I mean, I have to, I usually have to go outside of what I've reviewed for Slate, which means that I don't get to read as widely in nonfiction um, when I'm making this list. So I'll just be like, I heard about this, I heard about that, I'll go and check that out in the weeks leading up to putting the list together. But I feel like my nonfiction opinion is so much less well-informed than my fiction opinion. Laura, before you go, I also want to ask you about your audiobook list. You made a separate list of titles that you loved on audiobook, including talking about the narration and why you loved who was reading them and how they were reading them. And so I wanted to hear a couple of things. First of all, as a book critic, what your relationship to audio is versus reading in paper form uh, or electronic form. And also just name a couple great audiobooks that you would recommend. Well, my audiobook listening is really purely recreational. I do it while I'm doing chores or while I'm going for a walk or uh, sometimes while I'm lying in bed at night. And for me, it's it's completely determined by what I think I'm in the mood for or what I think would be fun or pleasurable at any given moment. So it ten- it also tends to be almost entirely fiction because I just feel like I get lost in that a lot more uh, easily. I get immersed in it so much more easily than in nonfiction where I'm constantly sort of tracking the facts and trying to figure out if the author is putting them together in a, in a, in a way that seems valid to me. Um, and also, you know, like with the right performance, a, a book can just be so, so much richer in a way. I, I mean, I know a lot of people don't want that additional interpretation from the narrator added on. But I find it with the right narrator to be really, really delightful. And also, I just, um, I can move around while I'm listening to audiobooks, which is a night makes a nice change from all the sitting that I have to do for my job. Um, I would highly recommend um the Lincoln Highway by Amor Tolls, um, which is performed by Eduardo Bellarini, who's sort of like the the prince of audiobook narrators. It's like a great road novel read. You know, it's like unputdownable, and he is he is so good. He's one of the those male narrators who can who can create a voice for female characters without sounding like some kind of parody. And, um, and it's just a, just a super fun immersive read. Um, I also recommend the dramatization of The Sandman, which is, this is the second part of the dramatization of Neil Gaiman's uh, graphic novel series, The Sandman. Um, it has like an, like an all-star cast, like you really just couldn't believe. And um, it's been adapted with um, uh, Gaiman narrating, sort of the setting the scene a little bit. And then James McAvoy, Michael Sheen, Bill Knight, Dennett, you know, it's just like, it's just an incredible roster of talent doing the voices of all these characters, which if you know the graphic novel is super delightful. But even if you don't, like who doesn't want to hear Bill Nye being Odin, you know, it's just so great. Or Michael Sheen being Lucifer. And, um, and I, it's just, I, that was just a sheer delight for me. And ahead of, there's going to be a, a 
adaptation, I think it's going to be an HBO adaptation of The Sandman. Finally, people might want to listen to this just to just to experience it in another form. Mm, yes, you had me at Michael Sheen. I'll listen to him read anything <laughs> oh, yeah. aloud. Yeah, uh, he's so funny as Lucifer because in this story, he's just really fed up with running hell. So he just quits and goes to the beach. And then all of the other characters in this universe that he's created have to figure out what to do with hell afterwards. Uh, I love it. All right, Laura, it's just always awesome to have you on the show. Let's find another excuse very soon, please. That would be great. I'd love to. Excellent. Laura Miller is the book critic and sort of all-around cultural critic for Slate.com. And uh, why don't you email us what books you read this year that came out this year that you especially liked? We'd like more titles. All right, moving on. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse. Dana, what do you have? Steve, I have a very you-pleasing endorsement this week. It may be something you already know, actually. I, this I is... like to be me-pleased, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I didn't choose it for that reason, but as soon as I thought I want to endorse this, I thought Steve Metcalf will approve. So this is a, um, a series of performances by who is a pianist that you love that we've talked about on the show before, known for his sort of very intense writerly uh, jazz piano style. Uh, I mean, I would go either Bill Evans or I don't know. You got it already, Bill Evans, who I have decided, yes, that he is sort of the writer of pianists, you know, something about the way he hunches and with a scrunched brow over his keyboard. Right. I mean, it's just it's it's as if he's he's writing on the keyboard. So I happened to come across, you know, via random algorithms on YouTube, serving it up to me, a series of Bill Evans performances that I believe is taken from a DVD. It may be taken down soon and be illegal. It's a performances over a period of 11 years from 64 to 75 called Bill Evans Live 6475. So it's basically a montage of him some black and white, some color with all different ensembles, just playing live piano over that period of time. Mm. And it's just so, so exquisite. And one of those things that makes you wish you could jump in a time machine and hear him live. I think I had mainly listened to Bill Evans studio recordings before, which are also nothing to sneeze at. But there's something about watching him create in real time, you know, with just a bassist and a drummer by his side, playing these standards that are 
always recognizable. He doesn't do the bebop thing of taking the standard so far from the melody that you can't recognize it, but he's exploring, he can take the most banal song and just explore incredible new melodic harmonic sides to it. He's also just really fun to watch playing, which I hadn't done a lot of because of that that style, the very cerebral sort of style that he has at the keyboard. So Bill Evans Live 6475, at least right now you can find it on YouTube. So go listen before it gets yanked down. I can't wait. I can't wait. I mean, he's so evocative with so few notes sometimes in a way that nobody else is who plays the instrument. Um, I I love Evans. That's great. Uh, Julia, what do you have? I would like to endorse the 2004 film Cellular. Have either of you seen this movie or do you remember this movie? No, not at all. Me neither. But somehow a trailer for it got touted to us on, I don't know, some streaming service. And we watched the trailer and it was impossible to place when this movie is from. The premise is that Kim Basinger is a well-heeled science teacher who wears all black and nude fishnets. Um, who become who gets abducted suddenly with like admirable efficiency, um, and because she's a science teacher, is able to put together the smashed landline phone that happens to be in the strange attic where she's being kept, and tap out random numbers with her science teacher skills, only to reach the Nokia cell phone of none other than Chris Evans, who I guess had his first starring role in 2004 when I would have assumed he was like going to the middle school dance, um, who plays like an affable surfer hunk uh, who somehow is moved by the pathos of Kim Basinger's quavery trappedness and then drives all over uh, Los Angeles in a succession of stolen vehicles um trying to etc 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 and anyway we sort of watched it as a joke because it seemed so ridiculous and kind of like a technology paranoia film uh but in fact it was um kind of just this great dispatch from like a different moment in movie making where a high concept concept like that could be greenlit and shot when the Kim Basingers and the Chris Evanses of the world appeared in the same films uh it was it was kind of great it's a it's a it's a tight 90 minutes and it really um was much more amusing than it had any right to be so cellular watch it wow I'm, i've been googling as you talk julia and i'm seeing that jason statham is also in it so that's i mean that is a really dream cast from all different worlds right there chris evans kim basinger and jason statham all in the same movie it's a pub quiz in the making it felt like i felt like it was one of those mandela effect things where i was like this movie never came out and if it came out it was in the mid 90s not the mid aughts like it just it it, it it it's this bizarre little cultural cul-de-sac um but it's actually weirdly worth your time Okay, a couple things really quickly. One is that I, you know, once I go down to the Be- go down the Beatles rabbit hole, I'm likely to stay there for an inordinate amount of time. So apologies up front, but I followed up the eight hours, which I wished had been all sixty of the raw footage of the Beatles documentary by rereading what I think is think of and remember as one of the greatest works of cultural criticism I've ever read about any subject, the book by the late Ian MacDonald about the Beatles called Revolution in the Head, where really he really lays out what their music 
meant and why in ways that are both supremely de- you know detailed and knowledgeable about like what what influences they were calling upon like what their studio techniques were why that was important how they were different from everyone around them or before them or really after them without hagiography it's it's it can be inc- it, it can be very icily critical at appropriate moments it's not a stars in the eyes at all stars in the eyes piece of writing um it's it's just it's it's just an it's an astonishing work and to reread it after watching the documentary where you actually see without any abstraction or voiceover or narration or handholding whatsoever like how, what their working methods were at that point in their career at least and like you know to go back and reread this and see that he really understood that and understood what that that friendship and rivalry meant and on and on and on it is it even i i highly recommend to be honest even just reading the introduction to the book i mean the the bulk of the book is him going song by song through their whole catalog, which some people might find tiresome. I actually think it adds up to a very long form essay about their their music. I mean, it's not just wonky, you know, uh, trivia at all. It's, 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 I, I, but the introduction alone for perspective, it pairs beautifully with the documentary, which is just a complete fly on the wall immersion experience. But um, it's both true to what that was, I think, for all of us who watched the documentary while putting it in 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 beautiful beautiful context which is an elegant work of criticism i couldn't recommend it more ian mcdonald uh, revolution in the head but then so- secondly did you guys know and probably everyone did but that sufyan stevens has a christmas album it's not only a christmas album it's like multiple discs worth worth he he made these funny little nonce christmas recordings for his friends and they circulated for a number of years on fan sites uh he recorded them i think in the very early aughts and some of them are traditional christmas carols some of them are like take the piss out of christmas find the tree and put it in your house put a mistletoe upon your mother's blouse if you most of them are just lovely and i know probably like a lot of decrepit aging hipsters i want christmas music on in the background it's evocative you know in a way that i can't quite you know evolve beyond of of my own childhood just the back the background omnipresence of christmas music actually remains a sentimental turn-on for me but most actual christmas music is just lacrimose and disgusting um this is kind of cool I loved it. I really love it. So it's called Songs for Christmas by Sofiane Stevens. Check it out. Julia, thank you so much. This was this was a good one. This is a really fun show. Thank you. And Dana as well. This was glorious. It was. Thank you so much. Uh, you're very welcome. You will find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. We do love it. We try to get back to everybody. Our introductory music is by Nicholas Bertel, the wonderful composer. Our production assistant is Nadira Goff. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Dana Stevens and uh, Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Have a very happy holiday. Stay safe and well, and we will see you soon.
This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.